It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 87 of the Night Talker. 1045, where are we at in society? In an ironic twist, Lizzo is getting sued by her former backup dancers for fat shaming them. At 10.15, it is the first of a two-segment chat with Austin native and renowned actor Ben McKenzie on his excellent new book that is the result of a two-plus-year examination on the legitimacy, or lack thereof, with cryptocurrency. And coming up in seconds, is the Pac-12 going to be dead before the start of the college football season? I am your host, Trey Elling. Give me a follow on Twitter at Courtesy Wave and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Day two is in the books for the Texas Longhorn football program. Day two being the second day of fall practices that they get themselves ready for the 2023 regular season. Kicks off a month from yesterday, September 2nd at DKR. Against the Rice Owls, no Longhorn fans. That game is not on LHN. It's actually on Fox, which means that there is a little bit less say-so on our end as to when that game happens. We'd like it to happen when the sun is going down because it's probably still going to be a billion degrees outside. But no, it is a 2.30 kickoff. So, wisely, I think, Steve Sarkeesian is having his team, at least through the first couple of days of fall practice, Practice when the game is going to be happening. You need to try and mimic the conditions if possible. Sometimes that means crowd noise if you're going into a hostile environment. But I think more often than not, it means trying to replicate whatever the conditions are that you will be playing your games in weather-wise. And so for him to have these guys out there running around, practicing, going through plays and drills in the 100-plus degree heat will serve this team well once the season actually gets here. Maybe it'll still be that hot, or maybe you are lifting heavy in a sense right now to where slightly cooler conditions feel like nothing when the season actually starts. Not a ton to take away from these first two days of practice other than a lack of injuries. You always have to salute a lack of injuries when we're talking about these practices. I know people like to overreact based on a big play that was made or maybe a guy not looking great early on in camp. We're taking all of that with a very, very large grain of salt. But we'll continue to monitor things as they progress. And you know that I will not miss a chance to give you an update on what is happening around college football with NIL, the transfer portal, and conference realignment really dominating these sports headlines throughout the offseason, oftentimes overriding what is happening with the NFL. And that may not be intentional by college football in doing so. The fact that you are outshining the NFL during the offseason, which the NFL has proven itself to be exceptional at staying in the headlines, even when there aren't actual games happening, is an accomplishment in and of itself. And the embarrassing component of that, not embarrassing for college football necessarily, but embarrassing for those most involved in keeping the Pac-12 relevant is how the Pac-12 continues to die a slow death. We are, what, less than a couple of weeks removed from Colorado 
voting and the Big 12 voting to allow Colorado into the Big 12 starting next season, next college football season, and going through the athletic calendar, of course. Colorado didn't completely skip out on Pac-12 Media Day, which, by the way, was a Friday news dump Pac-12 Media Day held over a single day on a Friday. I think it might have been in Vegas, but the fact that they put it on a Friday in the summer, I don't know. Maybe it's just poor scheduling. Maybe it shows that uh, they are afraid to expose themselves to too many people throughout the weekly news cycle. And burying yourself on a Friday will do a pretty darn good job of that. And since then, things have only gotten worse for the Pac-12. Leading up to the Friday news dump, media day, it was leaked out that the Pac-12 would not be announcing a TV deal, a media rights deal. This is drama that goes back more than a year now. With the Pac-12 insisting at first it was going to get a better deal than what the Big 12 did, minus Texas and Oklahoma, which guaranteed its schools $30-plus million per year, a number that may escalate after this contract kicks in, starting in 2025. And then it turned into around that same number, and then it was, well, hopefully in the ballpark, and now we know that that number is significantly less, at least based on the subscription model being offered by Apple TV, that it looks like, according to Insider Reports, will pay every Pac-12 school at least around $20 million, with some suggesting it is slightly less than $20 million, which puts them greatly behind the second tier of the major college football powers. That being the ACC and and Big 12, and well behind what SEC and Big 10 schools are going to be earning. Which is why you not only saw Colorado jump ship, I have a feeling, because they knew what was about to come, because this Apple TV idea was floated earlier this week, but it's why you now see other schools really starting to flirt with other conferences. This includes a report coming out yesterday that the Big Ten is strongly considering two, if not four, schools from the Pac-12 and creating a sort of Big Ten West. Although I don't know how that's going to work because right now you have two, at most you're adding six total Somebody's getting screwed on the other end from the Big Ten Conference. Maybe it's Nebraska having to do all that travel back and forth from the West Coast. But the Big Ten is looking what I would argue is the most valuable of the remaining schools in the Pac-12 right now, that being Oregon. Also giving Washington strong consideration, and they've been a solid program in college football going back decades now. Better more years than not. And then also taking into consideration Cal and Stanford, although I would argue there's a pretty big drop-off from Oregon to Washington and then from Washington to those two schools. Not to say they haven't been decent in a given year, but it's not nearly as much of a guarantee as Oregon and Washington. But now today we have more stories surfacing about what may or may not happen with the Pac-12 and its schools that up to this point, some of whom have been consistent and standing fully behind a future in the Pac-12. And it starts with the Arizona schools because the Big 12 has been linked to four schools more than any other since the craziness really got going. And after the Big 12 added the four schools that are going to be taking a part in this year's play with Cincinnati, BYU, Central Florida, and the University of Houston. Of course, they added Colorado But everybody's wondering now about Utah and the Arizona schools, Arizona and Arizona State. Well, Arizona State 
has been pretty consistent in putting its support behind the Pac-12, but that seems to be wavering now. Earlier today, the president for Arizona said he was content with the Pac-12 Apple deal, but later on, so earlier this afternoon, there was a board meeting being discussed for Thursday, and the board ultimately decided that Arizona and Arizona State should be sticking together here. And Arizona has not been nearly as consistent in its backing of the Pac-12. So now you're starting to wonder, well, are these two schools now looking to go someplace else? And if they are going someplace else, what is the most logical destination? That would almost certainly be the Big 12. And if that happens, there's no doubt Utah would be pretty close behind there, especially with BYU now in the Big 12. I think that rivalry game adds luster to them jumping from Pac-12 to Big 12. And then we also have this as we head into the commercial break, that being a longtime Pac-12 insider, John Wilner, saying that the future of the Pac-12, he tweeted this out earlier today, the future of the Pac-12 will be determined in the next 24 to 36 hours. So we may get to next week, and the Pac-12 is essentially on the verge of being no more as it enters its last year of conference play in football with USC and UCLA at the helm. All right, that is it for the sports talk for the time being. That's because that's because coming up, it is the first of a two-segment chat with Austin native and renowned actor Ben McKenzie on his new book about cryptocurrency. It's called Easy Money. It is a phenomenal look at the world of crypto. At the world of crypto, we're going to talk about that coming up next. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Ben McKenzie is an Austin native and renowned actor who first gained acclaim two decades ago in the starring role for the Fox series The O.C. Since then, he has gone to star in numerous things, including Gotham, and now he is a New York Times bestselling author. That is with his new book. It's titled Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Ben, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm good, Trey. How are you? I'm great. And uh, what a fascinating read this was. First off, congratulations on finally getting easy money made. I know it's been a little bit more than a year and a half in the making because this book was being promoted at South by Southwest 2022. How good did it feel to uh, finally get this book out into the public, much less it turning into a New York Times bestseller? Oh, man, it feels so good. You know, Jacob and I worked our butts off. Jacob Silverman, who wrote the book with me, um, we, you know, we had a great adventure. And it's just really nice to have it out, to have it be the first sort of crypto book that's speaking truth to power. Um, and the timing is great. You know, there's still more chips to fall when it comes to crypto. So uh, I'm glad I got in ahead of the uh, ahead of the curve. How did the emperor's new clothes and a little bit of pot help to serve as a sort of genesis <laughs> for this book? <laughs> well, yes. So I was reading my daughter, who was six at the time, uh, the emperor's new clothes. And I remember the story, but I had forgotten that, you know, the tailor's trick is just to convince the adults that only the smartest people, only the people of highest station can perceive the imaginary clothes they weave. So adult after adult is tricked into to seeing these things that don't exist because they don't want to look stupid. Uh, that felt very relatable to crypto. And then uh, the second thing that I had forgotten about the story was um, 
at the end, as the emperor gallivants through town naked, it's a child who calls out the lie. The only one brave enough to speak truth is someone who doesn't know he's being brave. He's just speaking the truth. And it was hard not to see myself as that child. So when I was reading my daughter, the story, this was about it was two years ago. I'd been looking at crypto for about three months. Um, I was struck by that. and I couldn't get that out of my head. I just could not get it out of my head. So I am a fan of medical marijuana. I have my legal card here in the state of New York. And, uh, you know, I mean, I like alcohol too, but, you know, there's a limit to drinking. I was definitely beyond that during the pandemic. And, uh, yeah, I thought while high, I thought, well, I should write a book about this, you know, which, you know, when you're high, feels like a really good idea. The next morning, sober, um, realized I didn't know how to write a book. And thus, I reached out to Jacob Silverman, this journalist who uh, whose work I, I appreciated. Um, and took him to drinks in Brooklyn and said, hey, man, what if we uh, write a book? I don't know how to write about events that haven't happened yet. And um, he was great, man. He he jumped right in and, and we were off to the races. You started really questioning the legitimacy of crypto as the hype train was beginning to take off. What first clued you in that there was something fishy going on here? Well, it was being marketed so hard, so hard in 2021 in particular that Anything that's being sold as like the f- the future of of it, any financial product in which they're trying to sort of give you FOMO, trying to sort of you got to buy it, and you got to buy it now, is you know that's a bit of a tell. Um, I would say honestly, the first word I stumbled on was was the word currency. You know, I have a degree in economics, and I you know was a little rusty, twenty years old, but I but I was pretty sure that one of the things you could do with money is buy stuff. <laughs> and, you know, with crypto, you couldn't buy anything. You could trade it and hope to like, you know, the price would go up and you and you could cash out and make real money off of that investment. But investment and, and money are, you know, very different things. You use money to invest, but um, investments are regulated uh, under the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, but these cryptos looked more like unregulated, unlicensed securities that really hadn't been properly classified as such. And so, you know, they're being sold to the general public. There's no investor protection. They're being sold through uh, overseas exchanges like FTX, like Binance. Um, the red flags were just, I remember thinking I was crazy and 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 somebody, I forget who clued me into this. Somebody told me you should, oh, just go to the SEC's website. There's a, there's a page for red flags for Ponzi schemes. So I did. And there is, there are seven red flags for Ponzi schemes and crypto checks off five, arguably six of the seven. <laughs> that was a real kind of holy shit moment, um, if you'll excuse my French. So yeah, I included the, the, the chart at the, uh, or the, the red flags in the book. But yeah, once I started going in, I just couldn't get it out of my head because it was so obvious to me. You're welcome to use whatever language you need right now. I'm happy to uh, censor it before it airs on the ESPN radio show tonight. So I'm glad you talked about that because something that I've done for going back almost a decade now is covered South by Southwest. I hit whatever red carpets I can, cover fest, uh, cover panels, and also trying to speak with uh, as many people as I can. And typically, as you're well aware, not only as a native of this great city, but someone who has now participated in it, South by Southwest is always operating on at least a couple of different themes. And one of those themes always has to do with the convergence of humans and technology. And in 2022, when you and Jacob had your panel discussion, by the way, 
I couldn't make it for whatever reason. I'm very frustrated that more people weren't attending that session. Shame on everyone that year for buying in the hype train. But one of the big subjects that year was how cryptocurrency and blockchain was about to change everything for society. And so I went around asking people just to try and find out more about this because I knew very little. What exactly is cryptocurrency and blockchain and how are they going to make things that much better? I spoke with everyone from Roman Coppola to one of the guys from Run DMC, but nobody could tell me exactly why this was going to be such a game changer. Donald Glover came the closest, and he was honestly much more uh, toned down about what its potential was for the future, which is why I was so intrigued by what you and Jacob were doing. You were two guys who were asking, I think, legitimate questions in this sea of hysteria. So I guess I set that up to ask just how weird was your 2022 South by experience? Because based on this book, it was wild, man. It was wild, man. Yeah. The, the chapter uh, devoted to that experience is entitled South by Southwest, the CIA and the 1.5 trillion that wasn't there. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, we got like r- recruited by guys who said they were CIA agents. Very questionable as to whether this was true, but it led to a <laughs> to a debaucherous night out. Um, as you do get drunk, getting drunk with the CIA. Um, the next morning I stumbled into um, like almost literally stumbled into this guy named Alex Mashinsky, who is the CEO, was the CEO of a crypto company called Celsius, uh, interviewed him. Um, I asked him how much real money was in crypto. He said 10 to 15%. Um, the rest was speculation, which made my blood run cold, right? At the time, crypto was worth supposedly $1.8 trillion. So, you know, give or take, that means $1.5 trillion isn't there, hence the, the the subtitle of the book, I mean, the, the title of the chapter. Um and yeah, sure enough, Mashinsky, Alex Mashinsky, the guy I interviewed, uh, well, Celsius went bankrupt four months later. Uh, Mashinsky's now been indicted for fraud, um, as well as sued by the CFTC and the SEC and the New York AG. I mean, you know, um, yeah, we visited the biggest Bitcoin mine uh, in the country, which is in Rockdale, as you probably know. Um, it It was a pretty wild experience. I mean, getting back to sort of what you were talking about with like, people in the entertainment industry who are kind of swallowing the hype. I mean, look, some of them who were endorsing these things were being paid in real money yeah. to convince you to take your real money and turn it into something else. So I'm not imputing their motives, but like how it works is fairly simple. As for the others who like were sort of caught up in the hoopla, I think there were people who really, the, inter, artists and entertainers were being told that uh, crypto and particularly NFTs were going to like, allow them to make money because they would own, you know, the original NFT, um, uh, you know, kind of receipt for, for the NFT on the blockchain. And therefore every time it was being sold, you'd make a little piece of it. And crypto was really good at sort of being both very grandiose and very vague in its marketing. So it was like, it's going to change everything. It's going to democratize and decentralize our, our financial structure. It's going to make everybody rich as well. Um, when there's easy money out there, you know, macroeconomically speaking, when interest rates are at zero, which they which they were, um, uh, and would only start to go up just a few months later, um, you know, it's pretty easy. People just tend to gamble with the money that they're given, and all these companies get started that don't really have products, don't really have revenue streams, and you know, it's all fine, well and good, but you know, then the Fed starts raising interest rates, and kablat, kablooey, you know, the whole thing blows up. 
Yeah, you did mention visiting that old Alcoa aluminum plant in Rockdale that had been turned into the largest crypto mining facility in the U.S. What did you learn from that trip? It was really fascinating. Yeah, so it's an Alco- uh, a shuttered Alcoa aluminum smelting plant. Um, and the reason it was appealing to the Bitcoin miners is that it has it can it can handle a lot of uh, uh, payload from the grid. Um, it's connected to the grid in a, in a very significant way. And so you go out there and it's just sort of warehouse after warehouse. These are like football field size warehouses of uh, computers stacked, you know, on top of one another, hundreds of feet in the air, just endlessly running over and over and over again. Um, they're, they're what's called mining Bitcoin, which means they're basically performing simple mathematical calculations over and over and over again on the random chance that they'll 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 be correct and they will be rewarded with the Bitcoin. So it's a very energy intensive. Yeah, you see you shaking your head and that's exactly right. It was dystopian. I mean, it was obviously not good for the environment in the sense that, you know, crypto is at best a form of gambling economically it's like it's not really doing anything it's not like it's not like these are weird investments cryptos like they a normal investment a share of you know uh, stock in a company like apple will apple make stuff and they have goods and services they provide crypto doesn't do any of that so it's really economically speaking like like playing poker in a casino or an online casino like you might win a hand i might win a hand or we're just passing money back and forth um but to keep the game going they got to mine all this bitcoin so in 2021 uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies used the energy equivalent of Argentina, the entire country, to basically do nothing. I mean, it's it's pretty messed up, man. I mean, you know, I I, I want people to have jobs, but we we should be putting them to like useful employment, <laughs> not to you know basically gamble on these these things with a huge environmental cost. He is actor and now best-selling author Ben McKenzie. The new book is Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud. Coming up more with Ben on the other side. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Back with Austin native and actor Ben McKenzie. He is now also a New York Times best-selling author. That new book that we're talking about tonight is Easy Money. Cryptocurrency, casino capitalism, and the golden age of fraud. So shortly after y'all attended South by Southwest 2022, you actually went to the annual Bitcoin conference in Miami, which had pretty much every mover and shaker in the industry in Miami at that time. And then some from Peter Thiel throwing $100 bills off the stage to Aaron Rodgers and a lot of people in between. And a seminal moment at the conference that year, which would have been last year, was an issuance of El Salvador's Bitcoin bond. But after the conference, you and Jacob, I believe, went to El Salvador, visiting everywhere from Bitcoin Beach to Bitcoin City and even the El Salvador Denny's. Despite El Salvador serving as an icon for Bitcoin bros, why is this uh, this country actually a good example of the perils of Bitcoin adoption? Yeah, that's a great question. So we did go to El Salvador, um, the only country in the world trying to use Bitcoin as real money. And it was a fascinating um, exercise in sort of the rubber hitting the road and the reality of what crypto does in real life or or maybe more to the point, doesn't do. The pitch in El Salvador was pretty simple. This young guy, this sort of crypto bro president who would like, you know, take to the stage wearing a backwards baseball cap, uh, Naib Bukele, he 
sort of all of a sudden the previous year in the summer of 2021 said El Salvador is going to accept Bitcoin as legal tender in three months in September. We're going to build this system called the Chivo, Chivo which means cool in, uh, in, in slang in Spanish. Um, we're going to build the system on top of Bitcoin. And basically the pitch is uh, you can use it to send money back home for remittances. And there's two to three million people of Salvadoran descent that live in the United States. The money they send home is the foundation of the economy, I would argue. It's like 25% of the economy. You're talking about a, you know, a fairly poor country. The average Salvadoran makes about $400 a month. Um, and so they need that money from their relatives and, and people are sending money back home through you know, MoneyGram and Western Union. And the pitch from Bukele was, well, we can avoid all that. You won't have to pay the fees. The government will take a tiny piece of the volume. It'll be a win-win, which, you know, look, like most things with crypto, it sounds good. <laughs> sounds great. Well, what happened? The day it, the law went into effect, the price of crypto crashed, which is fascinating. Uh, if you consider that it's somewhat unregulated market, it might have been front running. Anyway, crashed. Uh, the system failed like repeatedly all over the place. Uh, Salvadorans were given. Then thirty dollars worth of Bitcoin, like everyone was just given this to sort of like encourage them to uh, to use the system. A lot of people had their IDs ripped off. Somebody used their dog to like get the thirty bucks because the system was so you know dysfunctional. Um, so what happened? Basically, nobody uses it. Uh, less than two percent of remittances use Chivo. But what it and that's the government's own figures. You can check me on that. But but really, and it's being ignored by the the vast majority of the populace who. You know, it's it, El Salvador's dollarized, so that seventy percent of the country doesn't have a bank account. Seventy percent of the economy is conducted in cash, um, and that hasn't changed with with crypto. Um, they these folks don't have money to gamble with, so they need every dollar they have. They're not gonna like, they're not gonna <laughs> gamble with crypto. What crypto is useful for is, um, you know, criminal activity like money laundering. Um, it's useful for the drug trade, some of which runs through El Salvador. So, you know, corruption is not new in El Salvador, but Bukele um, is an interesting character. And I think crypto was def definitely helpful for him. To encapsulate it too, Bukele has basically declared martial law in the country. And El Salvador now sports the highest murder rate and the highest incarceration rate in the world. And it's also the only country, you know, that's trying to use cryptocurrency. So if crypto is this emancipatory new form of currency, it's awfully inconvenient that it's also the country where everybody's getting jailed. Um, that could be, you know, correlation is not causation, but it's um, it's it's an unpleasant fact that I think crypto boosters should keep in mind when, um, well, I think we should keep in mind when crypto boosters are talking to us. Yeah, much like with the crash, I feel like that is, uh, like you, is more synchronistic than coincidental there. Now, you also interviewed Sam Bankman-Fried uh, before he was taken down by the feds, before he and FTX were taken down by the feds. Hilarious picture that you include in the book, by the way, the, uh, the awkwardness there. But what was that like to speak with him? And what really resonated with you about that conversation after the fact? It was one of the strangest hours of my life. Uh, I mean, the title of that chapter is The Emperor is Butt-Ass Naked. Um, <laughs> I was just like, surely, because at this point, you know, we'd gotten to, this is just a few more, a few months after South By, the summer, we had gotten to what was at least being pitched as the pinnacle of the crypto industry, um, which it'll shock you, has somewhat of a pyramidal structure uh, in, re in reality. <laughs> um, so we worked our way to the top and 
I'm thinking, well, if anybody can give me a good answer as to what crypto does, it's got to be this guy. I mean, this guy's being pitched as, you know, Sam is all over TV. Celebrities were shilling for FTX. He was on Capitol Hill. He was having his ass kissed by everyone, really. I figured he's got to be able to give me some satisfying answers. And he just couldn't. I mean, to basic questions like give me one company, give me one coin project that does anything. And he hemmed and hawed. He talked about remittances. I just come from El Salvador, obviously. And I was like, you know, bullshit. <laughs> and then uh, he mentioned a, a coin called Solana uh, or a blockchain slash coin. And the blockchain shut down all the time. It's like not worked over a dozen times. And he happened to own a lot of it to the point where it was jokingly referred to as one of Sam's coins. So I thought that was awfully convenient. Um, it was a strange experience, man. And it left me feeling again, sort of like Mashinsky, that guy interviewed at South by it, it left me feeling like, oh man, there's worse to come here. And sure enough, you know, he was arrested uh, uh, in the fall. So yeah, <laughs> there are no satisfying answers when it comes to crypto. It's really pretty much the emperor has no clothes. Was there something especially surprising to you about that takedown when it finally did happen? It was shocking to me how simple the whole scheme is alleged mm -hmm. to have been. I mean, the scheme, as I understand it through the court documents, is Sam had these two companies, FTX was the exchange and Alameda Research was this supposed uh, market making firm. It was reality, reality more of like a poorly run hedge fund. But they were supposed to be separated, right? If you put your money on the exchange, you were there to trade crypto. You, But instead, what he's alleged to have done is instruct one of his lieutenants to change a single number in millions of lines of code, which created a secret backdoor where he could basically steal his customers' money. Um, so that's what you're talking about with crypto. Like when they say trust the code, <laughs> you know, code doesn't fall from the sky. People write code. And so you're what you're saying is you're trusting the people that write the code. But if those people are, you know, operating in a basically a, a seemingly consequence-free environment, right? They're in the Bahamas in a penthouse and, you know, it seems like everything's going great. Then, you know, you're relying on some kid to have your best interest at heart, right? I mean, we'll see what happens with the court case, but it was really shocking just how simple quite frankly, dumb the whole thing was. Um, I did not see that coming, but it, it's only fitting, I have to say, when it comes to crypto. You've obviously uh, acted in front of crowds for years now. Was it any more nerve-wracking to testify in front of the Senate Banking Committee near the end of 2022 about this collapse? It really was. I had been pushing behind the scenes to get a hearing um, to really show the other side of crypto because all you were getting in 2021 and even the first half of 2022 was the industry had given Washington so much money that there were these hearings where they would just be kissing the ass of whoever the uh, the crypto industry was putting forward, including Sam Bankman-Fried. There's some great clips of him. Uh, thank you, Mr. Bankman-Fried, for running a safe way of, I mean, it's like, oh my God. So, you know, I've been pushing for, for months, but of course it only really came about once Sam, his empire fell apart. So yeah, to, to to finally being able to get up there and deliver, you only get five minutes to speak, but you can put in a longer piece of written testimony. It was very satisfying. It, was, it felt like the culmination of a journey that had begun, well, actually where I'm talking to you from here in my tiny little office in Brooklyn, 600 square feet, and had gone all over the world. And then I'd sort of come full circle back to America um, to try to <laughs> desperately get someone, somebody in the power's attention. 
it was a pretty surreal moment, but also one that was deeply satisfying. So this book is so good from beginning to end. I mean, I'm having to, to cherry pick some moments right now to talk with you about, but it really is uh, the definition of a page turner, not just because you provide some great information and interesting stories from this uh, very seedy world, but you also do a great job of weaving in your own personal narrative in pursuit of information in the process. I'm curious, is there maybe a plan down the road to try and do something like the big shorts? Uh, did with the uh, 2008 crisis? Because I feel like there is a ton of potential there. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you should mention that. Yeah. I mean, I, I recorded a lot of these conversations on on camera. So I'm I'm putting together a documentary, um, which I think will be a comedy. I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, dark comedy. Maybe. Definitely, yeah, yeah, dark comedy. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm open to all of that stuff. I, I think of, you know, I think of crypto. It's like subprime, but dumber. So it's like, uh, you know, if if the big short were even more gonzo, I think that's what you get with uh, with crypto. But yeah, let's let's hope it happens. Well, in a fictionalized version of this story, who plays you? Oh, that's my favorite part. There is a character named Ben McKenzie, but he's played by Ryan Gosling. I think that's <laughs> it's only fitting for my career, who, by the way, is fantastic as Ken in the new Barbie movie. I highly recommend it. Really, oh, that, that movie is so good. I, I, haters going to hate. But come on, guys, we're talking about a fantasy satire. What did you expect with uh, some of the outrageous ways in which they tackle certain issues? But the message in the end was a phenomenal one. That's such a good movie. I, I love it. I will. I will. Uh, I will die on that hill. Uh, Barbie, one of the best movies of the year. Um, he is Ben McKenzie, an actor, Austin native, of course, and now a New York Times bestselling author. The new book is Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Ben, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Hugely important, uh, hugely informative, and also very entertaining at the same time. Man, I can't thank you enough, uh, Trey. This has been really, really fun. Thanks, man. Coming up, and where are we at in society? Oh my, the irony. Lizzo is getting sued by her former backup dancers for fat shaming them. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Final segment of tonight's show means it's time for... Where are we at in society today? That's right. It is your nightly look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction. Very occasionally, I will give you a story that provides a sense of optimism that has us all saying to ourselves, hey, maybe we as a people are getting something right. Perhaps all is not lost. But sadly, tonight is not that night. We begin tonight's Where Are We At in Society with Lizzo. Everybody's favorite, I don't know what you call her. She makes pop music. Apparently she plays the flute while dancing around, scantily clad. Which may sound appealing until you realize that Lizzo is, I don't know, 250 pounds. She's a thick 250 I'd say it's pretty proportional, but it is still a solid 250. At least that's my estimate. That's my carnival estimate right now. But perhaps shame on me for fat shaming Lizzo. We're calling out the fact that she carries excessive weight 
all while insisting on wearing very little and covering it up. And look, if you, you be you, you want to carry that extra weight, that's terrible for your bones, your joints, probably your cardiovascular health too, the risk for type 2 diabetes. But if you want to be you, that's fine. But have enough self-awareness to cover up a little bit more than somebody who is in tip-top shape. But that's not Lizzo's game, so good for her for having the confidence to do that. Here's where it gets a little bit hypocritical, though, because Lizzo has defended herself in the last few years against people who are essentially doing what I'm doing, which is calling her fat. Well, embarrassingly for her, embarrassingly for her, and ironically for her, too, three of Lizzo's backup dancers have just accused the pop star of sexual harassment and body shaming in a 44-page lawsuit that was just filed. The plaintiff's attorney said that the dancers' experiences seem to go against everything that Lizzo stands for publicly. One dancer said after she gained weight, Lizzo and their choreographer repeatedly questioned whether she was, quote, struggling with something as she seemed less committed to her role on the dance cast. And according to the docs, in professional dance, a dancer's weight gain is often seen as a dancer getting lazy or getting worse as a performer. So saying this in the professional dance world is widely known as a thinly veiled concern about weight gain. The dancer was actually fired shortly after that too. So Lizzo, and by the way, these dancers were not skinny girls. I don't know if they matched Lizzo's heft necessarily, but they're in the same ballpark. And I'm not talking Pac-12 media rights deal ballpark with the Big 12. I think it's very, it's much closer to the same ballpark than where the Pac-12 is versus the Big 12 media rights deal wise. If only the accusations ended at fat shaming. But apparently these three dancers, by the way, their names are out there in public, so I don't need to uh, worry about protecting them. Ariana Davis, Crystal Williams, and Noel Rodriguez also alleged that they were pressured by Lizzo into touching nude performers while at a club in Amsterdam to go along with the weight shaming. They claimed in this complaint that at a club called Bananan Bar, where attendees can interact with the nude performers, quote, Lizzo began inviting cast members to take turns touching the nude performers, catching sex toys launched from the performers' V-holes, and eating bananas protruding from the performers. Oh my goodness, I'm not going to read the rest of that. Lizzo, who is 35, by the way, for anybody wondering, doesn't look a day over 250 pounds, then allegedly began pressuring one of these dancers to touch the chest of one of the nude performers despite the dancer, quote, expressing her desire not to touch the performer. 
That same night, Lizzo allegedly badgered the security guard to get on the club's stage until he submitted to her demands. And this is the security guard getting on stage and not Lizzo, by the way, because that would just probably drive everybody out of the club. When he got on the stage, his pants were pulled down, exposing his butt, with Lizzo then begin beginning to yell, take it off, while a club performer hit the security guard with whips. <laughs> Apparently Lizzo was really letting everybody around her have it on tour. I guess at some point she shamed those who were engaged in premarital sex all while sharing her own sexual proclivities with her husband and with herself too, if you get my drift. So this is a big, fat, ugly situation for Lizzo right now. And even though I'm not in the gossip-mongering business necessarily, you know that this segment loves pointing out the hypocrisy of others. Can't help myself with Lizzo. Not after what she has supposedly stood for for these last few years to be engaging in these same sorts of things that appall her is, well, just as I said, hypocritical. We move on now from Lizzo to the Friendly Skies. I've said for a long time, because you hear stories of people who join the Mile High Club on a commercial flight, which means not only are there a bunch of complete strangers right outside the door, assuming that you're having to do this in the airplane bathroom, but you are essentially having sex in a porta pot in the sky. If you choose to engage in the Mile High Club in one of those commercial airline toilets, I know there are positions that you can get in to make that feasible, but it also seems like an uncomfortable brand of sex too, by the way. Like way more work than what it's worth to check that box. To check that sexual bucket list box. If there's an exception to joining the Mile High Club, it probably has to do with you being stupid rich and having your own plane where you can literally lock some part of the airplane to then do the deed with your person. And apparently, that is exactly what an Australian social media influencer has decided to do in joining the Mile High Club. Caitlin Rose is her name. And she has exposed through her, I believe it's a TikTok channel, that it is possible to pay an airline to get up in the skies and join the Mile High Club. She showed off a service during a recent visit to Las Vegas, providing her TikTok followers with a behind-the-scenes look at her, quote, perfect date night with her boyfriend. They paid $1,300 for 45 minutes aboard a twin-engine Cessna 414 provided by Love Cloud. This is a brilliant, brilliant business plan, by the way. 
I would imagine that they are booked up until, I don't know, November. In the clip, Caitlin shows the bed that's set up in the back of the plane between a few seats, as well as herself setting up a camera. She's also on OnlyFans, so I guess her influencer appeal is probably more about OnlyFans than it is TikTok, because I don't think you can show porn on TikTok. Then again, maybe you can. When's the last time you clicked on Arch when you see that in the trending topics on Twitter? Because something has happened with Arch Manning that day, only to scroll like three or four stories down to see straight up porn happening. It's happened to me recently. Thank goodness my kids weren't over my shoulder. That would have been a tough one to explain away. But I don't know if TikTok has that same thing going on. So the porn is happening on OnlyFans. The clip that was shown on TikTok, which at last count had around 8 million views, ends with a couple receiving their Mile High Club certification from the pilot. And that's what made it official. In various video clips, Caitlin did take her viewers through various parts of the date night that don't actually involve joining the Mile High Club with a text overlay that read, quote, we found a plane for the Mile High Deed. It's called the Love Cloud. We captured our memories. It is the perfect date night. Again, I'm going to do that for yourself and for your other person, too. Yes, there are services offering that now. Probably even here in Austin. It is a popular place for people to go after all. That is it for another edition of the show. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow at 10. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the night and sweet dreams. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elliott.